Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Dr. Katrina is a naturopathic doctor, a lover of science, nature, and the human body. As a passionate healthcare practitioner, she spent the last decade observing, researching, and connecting with cancer survivors. As the author of the international best-selling book, The Opportunity in Cancer, she hopes to bring awareness and a new framework to explore solutions to the many challenges that cancer survivors and their families face. Dr. Katrina, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So I am really, really fascinated. Can you take us back? I'm going to go way back. We're going to your childhood. Did you ever envision that you wanted to be a doctor? Was that a childhood dream? So I think I always wanted to work in healthcare. You know, from my bio, I really love the human body. Somewhere in healthcare was likely where I was going to end up. As far as a doctor, someone who does integrative, you know, oncology type of support, never in my wildest dreams. Um, You know, and even if you, you know, even if you go deep into my own personal story, you'll know that at the beginning of my career, I ran away from it. I didn't think Why? that I had the capacity, the the compassion. There's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of, you know, loss. And there's a lot of controversy over, you know, how to do cancer right. And it took a long time um, to kind of figure that out. And really interestingly, my parents' journey with cancer, which I'm sure you'll probably ask me about, um, you know, got me there. It got me to the point where I was like, I have to do this um, and I got to stop running away from it and really connecting with it. And so I stepped into it and now it's my passion. So when you started school, when you started university, what was your major? Uh, I did a biology and mathematics. I'm a little bit of a numbers nerd, um, which comes in handy when you're doing research, right? Being able to understand the statistics yes. and breaking it all down, seeing through it all, right? So, so yeah, I did my undergraduate in biology and, and mathematics. So you, you use the term running away, which I just love because if you're running away from, from something, you obviously felt a pull toward it. So what was a pool? What was your plan going in with this this double major in biology and statistics or math? Math. Math, math, yeah. So my plan was to apply to everything, right? <laughs> I applied to medical school. I applied to chiropractic college. I applied to naturopathic college. I was like, they're going to find the net wide. Yeah, yeah okay, absolutely. That's so funny. Yeah. So, okay, and, and what happened from a- there? Yeah, so I got accepted to both naturopathic school and conventional medical college. Um, I got waitlisted at medical college, and I decided I was so excited after the interview with the naturopathic school. I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to do this. And uh, I actually got pulled off the waitlist two days before I started naturopathic college. And I went, well, I'll put myself back on, and I'll leave myself there just in case this doesn't work out. 48 hours into our first set of lectures, and I was like, I am here. 
this are my people. This is what I want to do. I want to work with people. I want to work with nature. I want to like connect with my patients. I don't want to be a slave to the system or to insurance or to all these different things that people, I want to look at the traditions of our, of, you know, of our past. I want to look at what's going forward. I want to be cutting edge. And I always tell my patients, the one thing that I was never taught is to say, there's nothing more that I can do. Uh, well, we were always taught that there's always something that we can connect with in terms of making a person's life better. We may never be able to fully cure people, you know, right? But if we can spend time and connect with people, um, you know, then, then their process of health and their health journey gets better because they're able to kind of keep connecting and keep understanding what's happening to them. They get empowered. They can make decisions that they feel confident with, um, you know, and it really helps us as humans have this human-human interaction, which I think is so vital. Um, and it draw, keeps me in naturopathic medicine. Okay. So I hear the passion, man. It is coming through and I can completely envision you say, yes, I'm all in. But at some point, you pulled away, you ran away. So, so what happened that made you want to, to pull back from this? I mean, that clearly was your life's path. What, what happened? I think ultimately, uh, you know, I understood more than most people how intense working with people mm. who've been diagnosed with cancer is. I think more than anything, I did not feel like I had the confidence to be able to provide that. I think the running away part was literally just me creating boundaries and protecting myself because I, you know, who am I, this little girl who grew up in Southern Ontario, you know, tiny town to be able to like make this connection and make this big, you know, take on this big world of like integrative cancer and people's cancer journeys. And, and really, I, I, you you know, not only because of the journey that I went through with both of my parents, you know, that that only solidified it. This was a big deal. And when I was in school, you know, we were taught a lot of different things than we are taught now. Right. There was a lot of like, you're not allowed to and you can't and you can't and you can't do all this. And now we know more because there's a lot more research and there's a lot more connection and and, and it's grown so much in the you know 15 20 years that I've been in the naturopathic field. And so that allowed me to be able to go, okay, my intuition said we could do these things. Now we have the science to tell us that we can do these things. And so because of that connection, it really made a big difference. And I think when I first started private practice, I had a, I had a set of patients, husband and wife, they were in their, you know, retired years. And they were like my first set of private practice patients. And they were phenomenal. They, we would, we would just chat, we would have tea, we would connect, you know, I would give them medical knowledge. It was, it was just a symbiotic relationship. And he got diagnosed with cancer. And I said, I don't do this. I can refer you. There's all these people, you know, right. Even though I had had this background with my, my parents, I said, you know, I, there are all these other people. I think that they're better suited. They have more experience. And he kept coming back and he said, no, Katrina, I want you. I want you to do it. Well, I know they you, knew you Of course. Yeah. Right. And he unfortunately didn't make it out of surgery. So he actually ended up dying oh, before even gosh. going through the cancer process. And, uh, and his wife came to me and was like, I don't blame you. I would like to, I, I, can you be in this grieving process? Because no one else knows, you know, how, how, in, how intense he was. They, they don't know him like you and I know him. And so I was able to um, go alongside her while she went through this process and, and really transformed. And to me, I went, I'm not ever doing this again. I have to do this. <laughs> 
so important to me. They believed so wholly, you know, in who I was. They saw it and I didn't, you know, right? And and you have all the questions. What if? And you had you given different information. And do you know what I mean? Like, it, there's all of that. But as I went through it, I realized the gift that he could give me is the opportunity to step into that confidence and stop running away. And when that happened, I went, okay, I have to do this. I have to do this for the people of my community. I have to do this for a bigger purpose at large. I, you know, and, and it really was a fundamental shift. It was a fundamental shift in my understanding and my confidence. And when somebody that you connect with that is that emotional is able to say, no, you are the person you can, how are you supposed to deny them that, you know? Right. And so, um, and and he made such an impact on me. I mean, in my clinic, we named the IV suite after him. Like, like there was just this connection that he was. Always <laughs> well, what's his name? Connecting. We have to say it. Yeah. So his last name is Livingstone. And so, and I thought, well, how amazing is that, you know, that he's able to, you know, continue in all of that. And so for me, that was huge and it was fundamental. And I, and I love sharing that story because, you know, uh, you know, he, it was never that, that impact has made a huge difference on so many more people. Isn't that amazing how sometimes it just takes one person and they may or may not even know you well, but I had this woman say to me once, and my next book is dedicated to her. And, and that book's, you know, barely written, (laughs) but it's dedicated to this woman. And she had only known me a couple hours. And she said to me, do you have any idea how powerful you are? And I was really taken aback. And I, in my head thought, oh God, if she only knew, if she only knew that my marriage was falling apart, if she only knew, da, 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 da. And so I had this whole like laundry list of things, if she only knew. And of course I didn't say any of that, any of that. I just said, thank you. I saw her the following year and at the same event. And I said to her, and at that point we had gotten to really know each other. I said, what did you mean by that? I, I And she said, whoa, that really st- stuck with you. I said, yes, yep. it did. But, and no one had ever said that to me. And I said, so I just really want to understand. And I think that's so powerful when, when someone can impact your life that much. So Let's go back before Mr. Livingston and talk about your parents. So you're running away. You don't really want to do this. You're having second thoughts and you get pulled back in and talk to us about that story. How did that come about? So my dad went first. He got diagnosed when I was in second year of undergraduate. So I'm like in my early 20s, 2021 baby really like in the adult world. Um, And he gets, you know, he gets diagnosed with a cancer that doesn't hit 55 plus men that is abnormal. Like he has to push to get, you know, the diagnosis and everything else. And it's a complete panic, right? It's this, this moment of fear. And he went through all the treatments, you know, right. And I was too young other than caregiving and driving him to his treatments and, you know, and, and making sure that he's taking care of getting medications, you know, all that stuff. I, I wasn't able to fully, you know, I was there as a caregiver, but not as a medical practitioner. And so I'm watching it at 20 years of age, panicking because, you know, I'm the oldest of four kids and I'm the one costing the most amount of money because I'm in university and my dad's Mm. not able to go back to work. And like, there's all of this stuff. So we get through it as a family 
And I think it made a huge, bigger impact than I, than I thought at the time. Yeah. Um, and then I, then I go into naturopathic school and I understand more and I'm connecting and, uh, and then my mom gets diagnosed. So my dad's kind of in remission and he's gone through the experience and my mom gets diagnosed. And then my parents say things like, because I'm now an adult, right. And I'm in medical school. And my mom says, I much rather would be the person diagnosed than the person in a partnership who's the supportive person. The moment of hopelessness and helplessness and, you know, right? Like you have a, when, when you're the person who has cancer, you're the one who gets to make the choices, right? You're like, you're doing the work, right? The other person is like helping as best they can, but they don't feel, you know, experiential in terms of understanding that. And thankfully, because my parents both had that experience, they were unable to be even more compassionate. What I recognized when my mom was going through her treatments was my dad was experiencing PTSD. He, as he's walking in this, because there's same treatment center, and we didn't name it that. And actually, there's a name for it now, right? Because it's called post-treatment syndrome, um, right? And so they've clarified that it is, you know, just as triggering as some actual PTSD. And so I'm walking in with him to my mom's chemotherapy treatment and he doesn't even realize he's just giving me a running diatribe like you know oh my god the smell and this and that and when I was here and it was like six years ago right and he is literally reliving it and I went oh "Oh my god this is exactly this is he is reliving his experiences every time he comes to this treatment center with my mom he's sitting in the chair in the waiting room watching all the people you know you know, as they, as they're going through their treatment and he is being a mass part of this. And so, you know, it, that really struck home with me and, and, you know, and so it was a part of the thing. It didn't come out until later, you know, these observations and, and until until I started running towards cancer that I realized that, you know, that was a huge thing. And this is something that we don't always connect with. We don't always provide services for, we don't always know that it's there, you know, right. And, and so that was something that was really inspirational. And, and I just tucked away and, you know, 15 years later, I went, mm, this is a big deal. And so one of the things that we did with him was I asked him to actually start wearing earphones so that when he was walking in with my mom, that he would be able to play Vivaldi or the Beach Boys or something. And because he hadn't been doing it when he was in treatment, it the, the sound that he heard did not match the smells and the sights of what he was experiencing. And so because of that large distortion between the two things, there was a distraction and everything else, he was able to, you know, bring his anxiety down and connect with it. And, and so it was, it's one of the tools that I use with patients a lot, because there are lots of treatments nowadays where you go once a month for the rest of your life, you know, to get an IV. There are lots of treatments where you go every six months, you know, and, and in a lot of treatment centers, especially where we live, when you're going to get a scan to, to check up, you're going in the same door, you're going in the same place, you're sitting in the same waiting room. A lot of the centers are built so that you're just lumped in with everybody else. And how challenging can that be if you're having that same connection and you're experiencing that on a visceral emotional level? So it, it is one of those things. I mean, I'm just a highly observant person. I connect emotionally so much to these things. And so because of the work that I've been able to do with them, and then of course, all of my other cancer patients, I've been able to, you know, expand and, and really bring a totally different way to how I practice. Do you think that naturopathic school prepared you to treat cancer survivors? No, not at all. They, they taught me how to not kill people, right? You know, like, oh, okay, that's good. Kids, you know, right? Like, they taught me how to diagnose. 
They taught me how to make sure that, you know, things aren't contraindicated with each other. They, you know, they taught me how to dig down into studies. They, you know, they gave me some basic skills. But I don't right. think, and this is one of the reasons why I got really passionate about working with cancer survivors is because I don't think the education's there anywhere. I don't think that we are, whether you're a family doctor, whether you're an oncologist, whether you're a psychologist, you know, like I really don't think that we are focusing enough on this part, on the cancer survivor part. And I don't think that the education is there. I mean, the statistic that I read most recently is that for every 10 studies on active treatment for cancer, there's one for cancer survivors. And yeah. I understand there's like this huge and that's an increase. for that. Yeah, the massive increase, right? And and I understand that there's this huge need that we're still searching for the thing that's going to cure this. But the reality is we're getting so much better at what we do in terms of, you know, getting people to the point that they're survivors that now we have to like start going, oh, crap, 60 to 70 percent of our population is surviving this to five, 10 plus years. What are we doing yeah. about those people? Where are we actually starting to connect the pieces? I mean, I think that that's, a, I mean, there are some observational studies where they can show that, you know, um, depression and anxiety, uh, if it's not treated and taken care of, increases the risk of cancer reoccurrence. Well, how many people are just walking around thinking that that's normal now and not being provided with those extra steps to check in? And, you know, and there are a lot of the skills that the, the tools that we use nowadays, um, you know, for the general population that don't flag. Right. We use these Beck scores and we use these questionnaires and things like that, but they are provided for people that don't have cancer. So we don't have these, you know, these like, you know, unique tools that we need in order to be able to fully find out where a person is in their survivorship plan. And I mean, it's not the same everywhere, right? There are centers that are doing this better. There are centers that are trying to connect with this, but generally on a whole, a lot of people have run through finances, they've run through time, they've run through energy, right. and then they're said, go home and, and you're normal now. Like, go do what you were doing right before. Yeah. And I think that you're that's alive. Crazy. It's, Good luck. Yeah. And, and, there's, and that's setting somebody up for failure because they're not the same person. Like, there's no way you get diagnosed and go through treatment and come out the same person on the other side. It's impossible. So to expect to go back to the way you were when you got diagnosed, I mean, that, that's just setting somebody up for failure. So this is where my passion comes, as you can see, right? This is where <laughs> I think the focus for cancer survivorship is so important because we have these people who are trying to navigate without a set of tools, without a set of, you know, connection pieces. And, and they're just trying ad hoc at their own, right? And sometimes they'll be lucky and they'll find somebody they can connect with that's willing to drill down into the research, understand more. And, and many times they're not. I mean, the most recent statistic that I read was 1% of survivors get help. Wow. 1% oh of survivors actually access support. And oh. yeah, and 80% of them suffer for 12 to 18 months. But of those 80%, 30 to 40% will still suffer beyond the 18 months to two years. And so, and only 1% of them are actually able to access support. Holy crap. That's just not yeah. okay. You I, know? you know, I think we're, um, I like that you brought up PTSD and then now you said it's called PTS for cancer survivors. Yeah. And yeah. because I think most of us, when we think of PTSD, we think, oh, well, you had to have been in a war. You had to have been in combat because that's, I think, where it first came from. But now we are really understanding that any traumatic event can lead to PTSD. 
any traumatic event. A traumatic childhood could leave you permanently scarred with PTSD and you don't even know it. And so would you mind sharing one or two tools that perhaps are not conventional, but that have really helped your patients? Yeah. So from a PTS perspective or, a, you know, or a PTSD perspective, just for common lingo, um, there are lots of ways, yeah. right? Understanding what your triggers are, are the most important. So like getting clarity, right? And understanding what triggers you. Is it a smell? Is it an IV? Is it, you know, right? Because after mm. you poked so many times with chemo, you know, right? Like, is it something, right? So, uh, so clarity first helps. Um, and then, and then second to that, I usually recommend things like energy work. So sometimes these patients, it's, it, you know, right, like it's, it's whether it's acupuncture or, you know, hypnosis or Reiki or, um, you know, havening or, you know, uh, EMDR, right? Like there are these therapies that actually help to get down into those neurotransmitters and start reprogramming those pathways. Because these trauma and triggers events are essentially, whether it's, you know, a childhood, um, whether it's, you know, a, a car accident, whether it's war, whether it's cancer, what happens in the brain, and, and this is the very little that we know, is that that pathway starts sparking, right? So you walk into the door like my dad does, and all of a sudden this pathway goes. And so his his body goes into this, like I'm running away from a lion state, basically, right? Because yeah. that's what this pathway means, right? And so to reprogram that in the brain is really to drill down into what other one of those therapies helps you to actually stop that pathway from 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 going over and over and over again. Sometimes it works very simply, right? Some people are very open to it and they're capable. And other times they have to try certain, you know, a couple of separate therapies. But I mean, I love energy work, right? So yes, talk therapy helps, getting awareness and clarity and all that stuff. You know, we start with the basics, getting a counselor or psychologist, like whatever it is that works with you so that you have a third party, you know, that's invested in your mental health. So that's, a, you know, the foundation. And then building on that in some sort of energy energetic therapy. Because one of the things, especially with cancer patients, is that the energy is impacted huge. Like every cell in your body is affected by right. not only the diagnosis and the, and the actual disease itself, but also by the treatment, right? You, there's, not, there's not a cell in your body, whether it's your baby toe or your brain, that's not affected by it, right? And so ultimately, that's a big thing to understand. And so connecting with some sort of energetic treatment to reconnect all of those cells so that they're talking is important, right? And so there are so many ways to do this. And, and, I, and I will tell patients, just keep trying, try the next therapy, try the next, you know, right? If hypnosis wasn't it, it might be acupuncture. And if it isn't that, it might, you know, like, like let's keep going to drill, to drill deeper to make sure that we're able to connect with that. So that's my uncon unconventional. I never do it alone, right? So I generally speaking will always make sure that there's, you know, the talk therapy. And then I will always make sure that we're addressing, you know, stress factors because they obviously will make everything worse. Um, and so understanding the stress state that you're in, because one of the things that's very specific, because there's a lot of fear. I mean, when, when someone says you have cancer, right? Your doctor goes, oh, yeah. sorry, you have cancer. There's this like, like, it's like there should be a parade of lights and fear and upset. And, and it's just, it's, it, you know, a lot of diseases have a lot of, you know, stigmas. Cancer is fear, right? Yeah, the, oh, the, absolutely. The, the fear of like yeah. living and whatever, right? So ultimately that is important because from the moment you're diagnosed, you're in a stressed state. 
yep. right? You're like, it's, it's, and when you're going through active treatment, it's just one more thing, get to the next treatment, recover, you know, but when you're not in that state, now you have to try and unravel the stress state so that your body can connect, you know, reconnect itself with everything, nervous system, you know, and, and so anxiety and depression is common, but it's not bad enough normally that people will see it show up on all the regular scores. Um, and I mean, the most amazing study that was done, it was a five-year study in Korea, over um, 7,000 families participated and nice. they compared it to the national average. The national average of depression and anxiety at the time in 2017 was 8%. Cancer survivors came in at 30. And cancer survivor family members, like support networks, came in at 28. So we're talking three times more than the average. The right. statistic that was the saddest was that those that have been diagnosed with cancer are four times more likely to take their own life than the regular oh population. Oh, my God. Oh, that's awful. Right. Oh my and because gosh, I hadn't heard that one. Yeah. And that one's a hard one for me because it's so intense, right? That you're yes. going through this treatment and then they go, well, you should just be happy because you got to live. And they're like, I can't live yes. in this body. They, they feel so bad that they can't live in this body that they don't, that they're, that there's something missing for them to connect, you know, right. In terms of like being able to like make the next choice or, or get more help or something. But that's, that's scary to me. And that 4% the earlier you're diagnosed with cancer, the more likely it is that you have that. So, you know, when you're, and we're seeing it now, you know, 30 somethings, 40 somethings, like this is not just an aging process and disease anymore. Right. Um, right. You know, and so because of that, now we have this huge population that's at risk for suicide because they can't, they can't make that choice. And, and I, and I just, I can't live with that. And so I started by connecting with patients and putting together a treatment plans. Do you find that sometimes patients and their family members, they might know something's not quite right, you know, they, they might, um, but also there's that element of perhaps you don't know what you don't know. This is one of the reasons why I wrote a book, putting, giving okay. people the capacity to understand what is happening to put words to what's happening to, to to recognize what's happening is important spreading this word is important because then they won't they will know what they don't know right because right. because someone's able to identify it and they can go oh that is me oh that's not me right so so yeah. it's this this conversation that we have to start having to be able to understand it so i use those statistics because they're so drastic and important but more importantly is this is a place where we can make a big change like let's yeah. step into having a conversation about it you know right because there is this concept of like you know uh, what can i do i get this all the time what can i do to stop it from coming back right and they'll ask their mm -hmm. oncologist or they'll ask their nurses or they'll you know all these people around them but ultimately you know they don't get good answers right? They don't have a, an actual conversation about stuff. Oh, just eat well, sleep well, you know, don't drink too much alcohol and quit smoking. I'm like, okay, great. But what if a person checks all of those boxes, still feels like crap, and they're told that that's normal, 
right? Because a lot of times they'll go and they'll complain about something and they'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah. If it lasts, talk to your family doctor. And the family doctor's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, so the conversation <laughs> of empowerment, you know, right, is a very, very important conversation. This is how we make change by having a conversation about it, understanding what these statistics are, connecting and, and actually starting it. So, so I, to answer your question, this happens a lot in practice. One of the reasons for driving force of actually putting a book together was because for $20, you can get a book, right? And in that book, you can choose what you want to use, what you don't want to use. You can do it in your own home at your own pace. You can hand it to a, a, um, you know, a partner who doesn't get it because sometimes partners don't get it, right? Like sometimes they're like, I don't know what the problem is. The doctor says you're, ha you, you know, you're good, right? Why are we still in this world of scariness about cancer? And they, they just, they can't empathize because they, they don't know what they don't know. But when you read words, you go, right. oh, this is something different. And so one of the reasons yeah. why I like having conversations with people is because that's how we understand what we don't know is through experience, yeah. but more importantly, through conversation, right? The more like we open it. it, more we flash, you know, put a flashlight on it, the better we're going to get in terms of like actually making a change. So I, you know, those statistics are scary. And, and the concept of that is, you know, that there are people out there that are maybe, you know, not they don't know that they're in that space, right? But the reality is that the more that they start to do things or somebody hands them something or that you have a conversation, the more likely that that's going to, you know, blow wide open and we're going to have, you know, we'll have this conversation in three or four years and it might be a totally different scenario. Those statistics right. might change drastically because we're starting to go, oh, this is something we really need to consider. Something deeper needs to happen. And so, yeah, I think that that's a big piece of that. Right. Um, let me ask you this. So you basically, you told us about the patient and his spouse who convinced you to go in this direction with your medical practice. Since then, is there a particular patient who's really touched your heart? That's someone who comes to mind when I ask that question. Absolutely. So there are two small cases here that, that really connect specifically with the work of writing this book. Uh, because it's so important to me. My first was my girlfriend, her mom was a survivor of cancer, had breast cancer, and um, I never got to treat her as a patient. She kept saying, go okay. see Katrina, go see Katrina. You know, I know she's going to help you make better. And in December of 2021, um, she committed suicide at Christmas. She was oh six years old. And, and, and my girlfriend oh. came to me and said, Katrina, oh please write your book because I'd been talking about it. She's like, if I had been able to give her a $20 book, she might have made choices that were different. She might have been able to see something or connect with some of the words that you have. Like, you know, she might have all of those barriers that she was using to try to get more, you know, to, to stop so herself. She saw her mom struggling. And she was trying to get her to activate support, but she just, you know, she, the doctors kept telling her, no, no, it's fine. And, you know, right. And she just kept, she just kept going along and, and wasn't able to engage those services. There was all these, these barriers, right. There was all right. of these roadblocks that she was suffering from that she truly believed were impediments to getting better. And so when my girlfriend said that to me, I said, you're right, because I can't possibly treat every patient in the world. This is just not possible. But if I but if I put some stuff down on paper, not only could I possibly inspire, you know, family members or or people in this place, I can also inspire my colleagues 
right? I can also inspire people to go, oh, you know, I know a little bit more about how to connect with these patients. I know a little bit more about how to, you know, speak to these patients. I know more about the statistics that are facing these patients. And so, so there was this piece for me that was like, okay, the fire is lit. This has to happen. The second part to this is a patient that I have known for a very long time. She came in with an autoimmune condition originally. We worked together, disappeared for five years, and then comes back with um, ovarian cancer. So she goes through her first round of active treatment. You know, right? They say, you know, like, you did well. If you can make it to 365 days without a reoccurrence, you know, um, then you're likely going to be okay, right? So she comes to see me right after active treatment and says, I want to do everything I can because I want to get out of this state. I want to get my 365. Mm -hmm. You know, I got a lot going on. And so we threw everything we had at it. She made it to about 250 days and then had a reoccurrence. And it's, it's a happy story, though, because even though she had a reoccurrence, she lived five more years in active treatment. They, you know, when she had the reoccurrence, it was like, oh, yeah, six months, right? She outlived everyone's expectations. And when she got the reoccurrence, she came to me and said, Katrina, I really want to do this in a different way than I did it the first time. Let's let's look at everything we have. Let's do integration. This is clearly not going anywhere. It's become chronic for me. I want to treat it just like I treated my, my autoimmune condition. I said, great. So the partnership was phenomenal because she would come and go. So she'd do a study and then she'd come back and they would put her on base treatment. And, you know, and, and this is how we got five years out of it. As she was, so she knew that this was part of my, you know, that I, that I had been starting to talk about writing a book and I wanting, wanting to connect with patients in a different way. And, and, and um, you know, in the last three months of treatment, she came to me again and said, you know, I, I know that my time on this planet is probably coming to an end. Um, she was phenomenal. Mm. She connected like, you know, she had spirituality. She, she was just a phenomenal patient. And she said to me, you know, one of the last times I saw her in treatment, she said to me, I know that time is a problem for you, but please make time to make this happen. The conversations that I have with you, the things that I know from you, you need to share this. So find a way to make the time to make this happen. And that, that was another moment where I was like, she's not wrong. Like I, you know, I spent all this time with her and she knew that there was more that I had to share. And she, she made it, she made it so that it was like, it was a no go, right? Like, like the excuses, the not enough time, all that stuff. She was like, she knew as her parting gift to me was to say, you know, Hey, this has, this has to happen. Please make this happen. Okay. What's one thing going back that you wish you had known at the very beginning of your father's cancer journey while you were still an undergrad? I would like to say to myself two things. One, this is not a sprint. It is a marathon, right? Like this is not like, oh, we're just going to get to the end of this week and get to the end of, you know, right? Because, I mean, I was young. So it was like, when can we get this done? You know, the patience wasn't there. The patience in, in unfolding it, the patience for the diagnosis, the patient, you know, you know like, there, there was this piece of me that was like, you know, oh, done, let's go. Like, you know, I <laughs> want very hard to like, you know, go back and say, hey, this takes time. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and be okay with the time because the more you sit with the time, the better it becomes. 
because that means there's more time to do more things or connect on a different level or, you you know, right. And so, yeah, you have time. And so that was the first thing that I would say. And then the, the second thing would be, you know, um, actively listen in a different fashion, you know, like understand that, you know, every journey is going to be unique. Don't give in to the polarization. You know, one of the things that has been truly humbling for me in this practice is that I don't know everything. I work hard at knowing as much as I possibly can, but every patient that I connect with, every family that I connect with, they teach me something new. And so understanding that if I park my ego and I sit and listen, this polarization of what's best for each person and, you know, this give and take thing, like that has to let go. I have to let go of that because it's not my plan. I can, I can highlight all the things and everything else, but it's their plan. I have to partner with them and empower them to make a plan that they feel comfortable with. And the more I do that, the better it gets, right? For them, the time gets better, everything gets better, right? You know? And so I think that that's the second thing, like, you know, you got time, Katrina, calm down, right? And (laughs) like, maybe you need to actively listen to where everyone else is at, you know, to be able to connect. Yeah. All right. Now this time. You only get one, one, not two, no part A, no part B, one. 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 If you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in Canada, your country, what would it be and why? I would eliminate polarization. I would eliminate, well, um, this happens a lot and I'm sure it happens in the United States too. You know, you go see an oncologist or, you know, a doctor of some kind, and they believe that they have the answer, right? Just do everything I say. Don't bother, you know, seeing anybody else. Don't do anything else. Just do what I say, and it's going to, you know, do, do, do. And this happens a lot, right? I work in a place where integration isn't highly, you know, isn't highly sought out in terms of, like, you know, the the oncologists in our area are actively discouraging people to get nutritional advice from me. They're actively discouraging people to stop doing treatment, right? Uh, And, you know, in terms of the other parts of things. And it's not everywhere. There are places, you know, that are starting to sprout up, you know, you know, and they're in Europe, this happens a ton. But, you know, there are still even in Europe, where integration is, you know, a lot more common, there are still places where polarization exists. And I do not believe that polarization should exist because if we truly have the benefit, if we truly focused on the patient's best outcomes, we should not be having, we we can have discussion. Absolutely. We can have, you know, we can go into research and all like, there's so many things that we can do, but to believe that we have the answer. I mean, not, not a single person on this planet has a crystal ball. So, you know, if it worked 45 times for a person, it doesn't mean that the other five don't deserve, you know, a different course of treatment or, you know, a different connection. And so, you know, just to disregard the people that it quote unquote doesn't work for and say, oh, they're just outliers or whatever. This, again, is a disservice to the people that we're connected with. So if it was one thing, it would be to eliminate polarization. This whole, you know, I know, you know, thing, like, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in the patient being, the person in front of you being the most important person for that five minutes, 10 minutes, half hour, whatever it is. And the decisions that are being made are being made for that person. This whole running mill of like, oh, everybody check mark boxes and everyone gets the same thing and blah, blah, blah. Like, 
we've missed a human connection. And when we've missed a human connection, we've missed actual medicine, practice of medicine, right? And so I think that that is the thing that I struggle with specifically in Canada, but I know that it exists in all kinds of places. And so in healthcare, I don't think it has a place, you know, believing that you have the only answer. I mean, you can't do that. You can't say that that's somebody's, you know, as long as they have all the capacity to make an informed consent discussion and they know what the risks are and the benefits, you have to let them do what they want to do. Yeah. I, so I know a family, um, (laughs) the oncologist, this was a community oncologist, very small town, rural area. Um, the oncologist got mad at the patient and his wife because he decided to stop treatment. It clearly wasn't working. The side effects were terrible. And they decided, you know what, we're going to live our best lives together for however much time we have left. And what was so amazing is that once he stopped treatment, and I won't go into to the details to protect their privacy, but he lived another year not being wow. on treatment and just focusing on quality of life and what was yeah. important to them and just spending their last days together. And when I found out that the oncologist got mad at them, I'm like, what? I, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's their choice. It is their choice. And look what happened. Because if he had continued on the treatment, doing as poorly as he was doing with all the side effects he was suffering, he probably wouldn't have lived another three months. And and yet he lived a whole year. And of course, his pain was under control and everything. But I, I mean, it just floors me to hear things like that. It started early with my mom. So when my, my mom has a type of cancer that's going to be chronic for the rest of her life. And so there was a good okay. four or five years of watch and wait, right? Watch and wait to see it come out, right? And okay. when it was time to pull the trigger on treatment, the oncologist came in who was not the oncologist she had spoken to previously. And he said, this is the treatment we have to offer you. And she says, why are you offering me something different than the oncologist that I spoke to last time? Because yeah. they said, this is likely what would happen. Well, he says, well, you're old. And this is the treatment we offer old people. I'm scared to ask what was old. What was old? Yeah, My mom was not even in her 60s yet. So my mom says, well, thank you very much. I'm going to get a second opinion. And she, because my mom is a very strong woman and she's like, you know, this is contradicting the information that I had gotten last time, you know? Um, And so she, she's walking down the hallway and he runs out and says, well, if you don't do what I say, you're going to die in weeks and months instead of having years. And my mom was like, I'm never, she comes home and she goes, I'm never going back there. Get me a referral to somewhere else. So then she goes, yeah. So, so then she comes home like, absolutely in tears and live it. And this is what I mean about polarization, right? Like, let's have a conversation about what happened last time and what, do you know what I mean? Like, let's talk about why you're making this clinical decision. And maybe you'd be able to convince the patient to do what you think you want. Now, it was a mistake because she did the treatment that had been recommended prior by the other oncologist, and she's been in remission for 10 years. Had she done the other treatment that he was recommending, she would have had to continue taking that treatment for life, and it only has a lifespan of working for a certain period of time, and she would have no longer been a candidate to try the, the therapy that would have gotten her into remission. So, like, hello, what are we doing here? 
right? And so, you know, one of those moments of like, "Mm, should this polarization be happening? And that is clearly, I mean, a burnt out oncologist who believes that they know best, you know, like this whole, this whole lack of conversation, this whole lack of partnership, you know, and thankfully she was able to get referred to another oncologist, you know, right. And she went to a second opinion and, and she found another, you know, center and thank goodness she had the, the, uh, the wherewithal to like step back and go, I don't have to make this decision instantaneously, right? Like I have people that I can talk to, you know, and so that's a really big thing. And that's exactly, you know, right. We have to understand that there are some times that people are not going to, you know, get out of cancer alive. But, you know, the patient I was talking about with the, with the ovarian cancer, I mean, yeah, she didn't live 30 years, but she well surpassed what everybody thought she was supposed to live. And in a really good quality of life, she chose a different pathway, just as the example that you said, he chose a different pathway. And that choice is okay, especially if they're, they know what their goals are. All right, Dr. Katrina, are you ready to lighten things up with the threat of fire? Yeah, I love it. Beach, desert, or mountains? Funny, desert. That is rare, but good to hear. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Rolling Stones. What is one word that best describes you? Uh, One word that best describes me? Uh, I'm opportunistic. I love opportunity. Gosh, I love it. That's funny because the word that came to mind was passionate for you, but opportunity. There you I just go. Love it. Yeah, I love opportunity. <laughs> right? Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Song I want to hear? Mm. Mm-hmm. Something by Pink. Cover me in sunshine, probably. What about the last meal you want to eat? Oh, my husband's barbecue steak. Barbecue steak. Interesting. Okay. What about the last person or people you want to see? Uh, My kids and my husband. Yeah. How old are your kids? Six and nine. Oh, oh God, they're still in the sweet stage. (laughs) What about the last words you will speak? Um, Peace out. I'm gone. (laughs) That's awesome. Okay. I should laugh. Okay. Woo. Okay. Bring it back. Um, yeah. And aside from cancer, you, what's one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And I also want you to tell people how they can get in touch with you and get your book as well. Yeah. So resource, I think anything that focuses on cancer survivorship, there are, you know, there are retreats, there are, you know, there are magazines, there, they're just, you know, making sure that you're around people who get it, right? Yeah. Um, for me, obviously, the big thing is joining the website, the Cancer Remission Mission. So my whole plight is to get accessibility, individuality, you know, right, and start shining light on this group of people. Um, and my book is the starting point of that, the opportunity in cancer. So you can go to the website and contact that we have a web, we have an email address there, hello at cancerremissionmission.com. Um, and so, yep, you can send any questions 
questions there, easy. You know, we're monitoring that on a regular basis. You can join the mailing list because we'll be doing like webinars and all kinds of fun stuff to spread the word because that's what we want to do, have conversations, spread the word. And uh, if uh, uh, the book is available on Amazon electronically as well as in paper copy. Um, and there is an entire workbook guide that goes with it that you can get as a value add for free right now. So um, that helps you go through all of the steps. So yeah. So we will put a link to that in the workshop in the show notes and you're speaking so fast. So could you say the name? Well, we're still going to put it there, but say the name of the website again, because I love the name. So www.cancerremissionmission.com. Cancer remission mission. 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 Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I love it. Okay. And I'm glad I asked because I actually don't think we have that for you. So on file. So I'll make sure we make a note of that. Well, Dr. Katrina, thank you for coming on and sharing your expertise with us. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely to have a conversation and, you know, spread the word. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories. True stories.